Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Chapter 2, as we started last week, this new sermon series, The Gospel According to Judges. Many of you know I grew up in Colorado Springs, and it was not uncommon to hear about hikers that would hike the trail up to Pikes Peak to get struck by lightning. Now, anybody here ever been struck by lightning or know somebody? I've actually known a few people that have gotten struck by lightning. Have you ever seen lightning strike a tree? What happens? You hear the sound of electricity. The lightning splits the tree in half, and the tree falls to the ground because it's been struck by lightning. Now, what does a tree getting struck by lightning have to do when you hear the word repentance? What comes to your mind when you hear the word repentance? Now, Martin Luther gave this very colorful illustration in defining repentance. Listen to the words of Martin Luther. He says, In repentance, there must be a deep hurt if the old man is to be put off. When lightning strikes a tree or a man, it does two things at once. It rends the tree and swiftly slays the man, but it also turns the face of the dead man and the broken branches of the tree itself toward heaven. Has God ever struck you in the heart where it leveled you to the floor in anguish? And there lying on your back metaphorically, the only place you can look is up to the heavens and see your gracious Savior there as the only one who can forgive you. This is the month of October. And on October 31st, our culture celebrates Halloween. But we, evangelicals, celebrate the Protestant Reformation. Reformation Day is October 31st. And uh, the Reformation was launched when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church in Germany. It's very interesting. Those 95, here's the first of the 95 Theses that launched the Protestant Reformation. This is the first sentence. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, in saying, Repent and believe the Gospel, meant that the whole life of the believer to be an act of repentance. The Protestant Reformation was launched with this idea that the whole life was meant to be a life of repentance. Do you realize the first word of the gospel is repentance? Listen to some of the very first words that came out of Jesus' mouth in his public ministry. In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Now after John, that's John the Baptist, was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, and these are the first words out of Jesus' mouth in the book of Mark, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The first words out of Jesus, repent 
and believe the gospel. Now, what were some of the last words out of Jesus' mouth? When he gathers his disciples together, and we find this recorded in the book of Luke, some of the last words Jesus gives to his disciples, recorded in, in Luke's gospel, Luke 24, 46 47, he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Some of the first words out of Jesus' mouth were repent and believe the gospel. Some of the last words out of Jesus' mouth were repent. Now, what do you think the book of Acts teaches us? Did the apostles believe this? Did they preach this? What's the primary message of the disciples in the book of Acts? Acts 17.30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, why do I bring up the topic of repentance this morning? We move into Judges chapter 2, and it is a preview of coming attractions. It sets up the issues for the rest of the book. Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 are a hinge upon which chapter 1 swings us into the rest of the book. And so this is a, a summary statement. It, it's a hinge that kind of links the, the introduction to the book of Judges to the rest of the book. And what did we see last week when we started? Well, we remember last week that the book starts off on a positive note. Judah and Simeon, they're praying, they're inquiring of the Lord, they're working together. God is giving them victory in conquering the land. But then things go south very quickly. All the other tribes are failing. And if you remember, seven times in chapter 1, it was repeated, they did not drive out these pagan nations. They did not drive them out. And so we said last week that the central theme of Judges is this, the paganization of God's people. Or to put it more precisely, the Canaanization of God's people because they were going into the land of the Canaanites. And one of the things we said last week, and this is the major theme of Judges, there will always be a temptation to be like the worldly culture around us. There'll be a temptation to become paganized like the culture around us. So Israel did not follow the Lord with complete obedience. It was partial obedience. So let's read together as we go into chapter 2. We're just going to look at verses 1 through 5 and see the word of the Lord this morning. So Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bacham, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you've not obeyed my voice. What is this you've done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. And as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bakim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Bakim means place of weeping. So here's what this passage is teaching us. Here's the central theme of this passage of Scripture. Sorrow for sin 
is not necessarily repentance from sin. Sorrow for your sin, being sorry for your sin, is not the same as genuine repenting from your sin. And that brings up a question for us this morning. What exactly is genuine repentance? Is there such a thing as fake repentance? Does being sorry for your sin actually mean that you've changed and that you have truly repented? So this section before us today reads like a courtroom drama. God is bringing Israel into the courtroom to put them on trial. And we see this trial, if you will, unfold in three main sections. So let's see the courtroom drama this morning as God puts the nation of Israel on trial. Here's the first thing we see. We see the charges against Israel in verses 1 and 2. God lays forth the charges. Now, before we get to the actual charges, we've got to ask a question. Who's the angel of the Lord? Because it says there, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bakim, and he said, the angel's talking. Who is the angel of the Lord? Now, there's a lot of debate. There's a lot of discussion. Who is the angel of the Lord? Well, you go back to Exodus, chapter 23, verses 20 through 23. Behold, God says, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When the angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and to the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out. This angel, I take it at face value that it's the angel of the Lord. God sent a powerful angel to lead the nation in the promised land. That angel was with Joshua. And so right now, this angel is becoming the voice of God, and the angel is acting as the prosecuting attorney. The angel is going to level charges against the nation of Israel. Now, what's the significance of Gilgal? They went up from Gilgal. Where's Gilgal? Well, if you go back to Judges, I mean, you go back to Joshua chapter 5, Gilgal is the place where that same angel of the Lord appeared to Joshua and gave him strength to go lead the nation. So it was basically holy ground, Gilgal. It was also the base camp where Joshua would go out with his army and, and do the conquest. So Gilgal is a very important place. And so the angel says, it's time to leave. And here's what we find out. Before he charges Israel with their sins, this angel is going to remind Israel of God's graciousness in the past. And, and he, he reminds Israel of three events. And you can see them right here in your text. What's the first thing that the angel reminds them of God's grace in the past? He says there in verse 1, I brought you up out of Egypt. I, I, I redeemed you from slavery. He reminds them, I'm your Redeemer, I'm your Lord, I'm your Sovereign. I saved you by the Passover Lamb, the blood of the Lamb. I saved you through the crossing of the Red Sea. I did not have to do this. I redeemed you by sheer grace alone. I have redeemed you from slavery. Psalm 108, I mean, sorry, Psalm 106, 8-10. Yet He saved them for His namesake 
that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through the desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. By sheer grace alone, God redeemed them from Israel. But the second thing that we're reminded of here, that the angel of the Lord reminds them of, is, and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your forefathers. Second way God has been gracious in the past is he, he, not only did he bring them out of Egypt, but he brought them into the land. I'm bringing you into the promised land. I'm giving you the promised land. The Lord entered into a binding covenant with Abraham, all the way back in Genesis, that God would give Abraham and his descendants the land, the land of Canaan, the promised land. Back there in Genesis 17, 7 through 8, Establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God says, I led you out of Egypt by sheer grace and power. I've given you the promised land, but there's the third thing God promised. The Lord will never break his covenant with Israel. Thirdly there, he says, I will never break my covenant with you. I'm a promise-keeping God. Exodus 19, 3-5. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, thus saying, You shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. How I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. So before God levels his charge against Israel, he says, listen, I got you out of Egypt by sheer grace. I brought you into the promised land by sheer grace, and I'm never going to break my covenant with you by sheer grace. I am a gracious, oath-keeping covenant God who loves you. And then before he gives the charge, he gives two specific commands. He reminds them of the commands that God gave them. God's been gracious with you, but he also gave you a command. So we see these commands in verse 2. What did God say? You shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land, and you shall break down their altars. Two things. Don't make a covenant with the people that you're going into, and then also break down all of their altars. God gave these instructions back in Exodus. Exodus 34, 11 through 15. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you're invited, you eat of his sacrifice. God says, totally obliterate all the false gods. Go in and tear everything down. Don't leave a pole remaining. Don't leave an altar remaining. Don't leave a, a shrine. Get rid of all elements of pagan worship. Destroy it all. And don't enter into any covenants with these ancient nations. 
absolutely obliterate any semblance of this pagan religion. Deuteronomy 12, 1 through 3. These are the statutes and the rules you should be careful to do in the land that the Lord your God of your fathers has given you to possess. All the days that you live on the earth, you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. On the high mountains, on the hills, under every green tree, you shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. God's been very clear. Get rid of all the false religion. Chop it down. Tear it down. Burn it down. Get rid of it. Okay, at the end of verse 2, we see God's charge. Prosecuting attorney, what is the charge that God brings against Israel? But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you've done? You've not obeyed my voice. It's interesting the way God says you've not obeyed my voice. The one true God, the God of Israel, is the only God who speaks. These false gods don't speak. God speaks, and God has given them His Word. God has revealed to Israel what they're supposed to do. Here's the point. Israel cannot plead ignorance that they didn't know what God said. Israel can't say, well, we didn't know what you told us, God. We had no idea what you told us, God. You could have been more clear, God. God was very clear. God spoke over and over again through Moses to them what they were supposed to do. Deuteronomy 4, 1 through 2. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, I command you. God is very clear. I'm telling you what you should be doing. But listen to the dagger in the heart. What does God say? What is this you have? Is this because God didn't know what they'd done? God was surprised. No, God's sovereign. This is a rhetorical device for God to put the dagger in their heart. Israel, I've been gracious to you. Israel, I've told you exactly what you're supposed to do. Israel, I brought you into the land. Israel, destroy all of the idolatry. Israel, do what I'm telling you to do. You've not done it. Why? What have you done? Like an arrow in the heart. Of Israel. God lays them bare in the courtroom for them to answer for their crimes. So that's the charge. You've not obeyed my voice. That's the first thing we see. The charge leveled against Israel. You've not obeyed my voice. I've been clear. I've spoken. You're not listening. What is this that you've done? Okay, second thing we see this morning. We've seen the charges imp- uh, leveled. The second thing we see is the sentence imposed against Israel. So God's going to charge them with disobedience, but he's going to level a sentence. He's going to impose a sentence. What's going to be their punishment? Well, notice what he says. Verse 3. So now I say, here's the sentence, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. You didn't drive them out? I'm not going to drive them out. You're going to be stuck with these pagan nations. These ites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Jebusites, all these ites, 
they're going to surround you. They're going to be a snare to you. They're going to be a thorn to you. You're going to have to live with these nations that you did not drive out as an act of punishment. That's your sentence. They would be a thorn in your side. And God warned them about this earlier. Numbers chapter 33, verse 55. God said earlier, Numbers, if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall be trouble to you in the land where you dwell. They're going to cause you trouble. They're going to be thorns. Joshua 23, 13. Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, that they shall be a snare, a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good ground that the Lord God has given you. They're going to be thorns and painful, and you're not going to be able to get rid of them. They're going to cause you problems. Old Testament scholar Daniel Block makes this great insight. Listen to what he says. He says, quote, The Israelites will be caught in the trap of their gods, lowercase, like a fly in a spider's web. Israel, you're stuck with these nations. And they're going to be a snare to you. They're going to be a temptation to you. They're going to be a problem to you. And why? Because you didn't drive them out. You didn't do what I told you to do. It was partial obedience. It was halfway obedience. But look where it's gotten you, Israel. You're stuck with these nations. And it's not going to go well for you. And really, that's the rest of the book of Judges. So, God levels the charges. Israel, you've not obeyed. He gives them the sentence. You're going to have to be stuck with these nations. And really, the rest of the book of, of Judges plays that out for us. But let's look at the third thing this morning. Third, we see the questionable response from Israel in verses 4 and 5. Now, why do I say questionable response? I'll explain why I call it a questionable response. Notice what we see here. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. They cried. And they called the name of that place Bakim, which means weepers or place of weeping. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. They cried. Now here's the question. Why did they cry? Did they cry because they got caught? Did they cry because it was uncomfortable? Or was this true repentance? Was it true repentance or false repentance? I'll tell you what it is. It's false repentance because this is the last time Israel is going to respond this way for the rest of the book. And here we are in chapter 2, okay? Surprisingly, they're not going to respond this way for the rest of the book. This is not genuine repentance. They cry because they got caught. They cry because they have to live with the consequences of their sins. They don't cry because they've offended a holy God. Now, they sacrificed to the Lord, and they cried. But here's the question. Was it lasting, genuine repentance? Was it weeping without repentance? Crying without true change? Matthew Henry wrote this. I encourage you to go back if you want to get some good commentaries from the old days. Matthew Henry said this, quote, 
This was good, the crying, and a sign that the word they heard made an impression upon them. It is a wonder sinners can ever read their Bible with dry eyes. But this was not enough. They wept, but we do not find that they reformed, that they went home and destroyed all the remains of idolatry and idolaters among them. Many are melted under the word that harden again before they are cast into a new mold. You see any evidence of them going home and breaking down these altars? No. They cried. That was it. One of my favorite preachers from the 20th century is Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a Welshman from Wales. And one thing you need to know about people from Wales is they are very emotionally driven people. They can be moved to tears by poetry or by songs. Or, or one of Martin Lloyd-Jones' big concerns was that these, these Welsh preachers were great orators and they can move people to tears with their preaching. And this is what Martin Lloyd-Jones said about his country, Wales, Welshman. He said this about his own people. Quote, It's very easy to make a Welshman cry, but it needs to be an earthquake to make him change his mind. I wonder if that's true of you. I'll cry because I got caught, but it's going to take an earthquake to make you change your mind. They were moved to tears, but it was weeping without repentance. So let's ask the question this morning. What is genuine repentance? What is repentance? Well, the word repent, metanoeo, in the Greek, means to have a change of mind, literally a change of mind, about your sin and about a holy God that leads to a changed life. A changed mind that leads to a changed life. There's another Greek word, epistrepho, carries the same idea. It means to make a 180 degree turn. So you take these two words, these two Greek words together, and here's what repentance means. It means that you have an inward change of heart and mind that results in an outward transformation of life that trusts in Christ. Thomas Watson gives my favorite definition. He says, Repentance is a grace of God's Spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. Two things. Are you inwardly humbled and does it lead in visible reformation of your life, a changed life? So, Israel feigned repentance. They faked repentance. They, they cried big crocodile tears, but there was really no change. So let's ask the question, what is genuine repentance? So I want to share with you this morning three marks of genuine repentance. Here's number one. Genuine repentance does involve a godly sorrow for sin. It does involve sorrow, but notice I said godly sorrow. There is such a thing as worldly sorrow, which is nothing more than being sad you got caught or sad you have to deal with the consequences of your sin. Pastor Dustin read this earlier during our time of confession, gave a great explanation. Let me explain it again. 2 Corinthians 7, 9-10. through 10. As it is, Paul writes, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief. So that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Paul says, you guys cried. And crying's good, but it was a godly grief. Because that crying led to 
true repentance, a repentance unto life, a repentance unto salvation. There's such a thing as worldly repent, worldly grief. Worldly grief is more like remorse. I got caught. Darn it. I got to deal with the consequences. I, I, I look bad in front of other people. I don't want to look bad. I'm going to have to deal with the fallout of this. Let me just remind you, Judas felt remorse, but he never repented. It was worldly grief, not godly sorrow. Godly sorrow means I am sorry not only that I sinned, but I've offended a holy God. And I will take whatever consequences come my way, and I will live with the fallout. What's most important to me is I've offended my Savior. And I don't care about the consequences or what it does to me. I am so burdened with grief over the fact that I've sinned against my God that I'm overcome with a godly sorrow. That's number one. Number two, genuine repentance involves a confession of specific sins. Specific sins. Psalm 32.5, I acknowledge my sin to you. and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I acknowledged my sin. I didn't cover it up. Proverbs 28, 13, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Now, confession involves acknowledging specific sins. Now, does God know what our sins are? Yes. Are we giving God information when we confess? No, we're not giving God new information, but what God is, is doing in our heart is we're coming clean, we're not hiding, we're being specific. Oftentimes we can be very generic in our confession. Lord, please forgive me for my sins today. Like a catch-all. Repentance means, no, I get very serious. I pull that sin out, I look at the ugliness of that sin, and I confess that specific sin, and I lay it at the, at the feet of the cross and say, I am guilty for this specific sin. I get specific. God charged Israel here with a very specific sin. Do you ever see the Israelites saying, we confess that we did not tear down the altars. We confess that we did not listen to your voice. Do you see any type of confession of specific sins here? No, they... they what does it say there? They sacrifice to the Lord, but it's just weeping. There's no specific confession. So number one, there's got to be godly sorrow. Not just, I'm sorry I got caught. There's got to be specificity. You've got to get specific with your sins. You can't be generic. But here's number three, and probably the most important. Genuine repentance results in a lifelong turning from sin. Lifelong turning. You don't just repent once. You're always repenting. Isaiah 55, 7, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Forsake your way, the way you live, and forsake your thoughts, your attitudes. So this is repenting from your actions, repenting from your attitudes, and returning to the Lord. And when you do that, you find out that He's abundantly able to forgive you of your sins when you turn to Him. Joel 2, 12-13, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. 
and he relents over disaster. Return. Repent. Turn. Luke 3, 8. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit. In other words, repentance is an ongoing fruit change in your life. There's ongoing change. There's ongoing transformation. It's not just a one time I repented at the altar when I was 15. Repentance is more than just being sorry for your sin. It means that you are always confronting your sin. You're always confessing your sin. You're always turning from your sin. And there's true life change. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 For they themselves report concerning to us the kind of reception we had among you. How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That does not describe Israel in the book of Judges. They did not turn from idols to serve the living God. They didn't destroy the idols. The idols came and consumed them. Repentance is a lifelong process. Richard Owen Roberts says this, True repentance is not a single act, but a continual attitude. I often said this before. It's kind of a weird way to put it. What, what's another synonym for a Christian? What do, we, what do we often call each other? Well, we call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. We call each other Christians. But what's the a, what's a word we often use? He's a believer, right? We're believers, okay? When's the last time you called yourself a repenter? A repenter. I'm a believer. Yeah, we understand what you mean. We're brothers, we're sisters, we're believers, we're Christians. But how about we're repenters? We always are repenting. Charles Spurgeon, in his sermon, Two Essential Things, says this. I've got to give you a Spurgeon this morning. Quote, I fear that some people fancy that they repented when they were first converted and that thereafter they've done with repentance. But it is not so. The higher the faith, the deeper the repentance. The saint most ripe for heaven is the most aware of his own sin. The higher the faith, the deeper the repentance. Sinclair Ferguson writes this, Repentance is turning around of the whole life in Christ, a radical heart transformation that reverses the whole course of life. So here's the question for you. Have you repented? Genuinely. Are you marked by ongoing repentance in your life? And you may be asking this question. Why in the world am I getting away with sin and nothing happening to me? I mean, I'm sinning all the time, and God has not struck me dead, and, and God's really not disciplined me. I've gotten away with murder, metaphorically. Why, why, why do I keep sinning and nothing happening to me? Let me give you the answer. Romans 2.4. Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The reason... God is being kind with you and not disciplining you. It is not so you can continue to sin. It's so that you can repent. I love sinning. God loves forgiving. Let's keep up this great relationship. That's not repentance. Repentance is God is being kind with you this morning and His kindness is meant to not for you to continue into your sin, but for you to be repentant, to come before Him to receive His mercy and His grace, not as an excuse to continue to sin, but to follow Him in repentance. So don't be like the Israelites who cried big crocodile tears. 
that had no change. Don't let there be weeping without repentance. Repentance involves turning from and turning to. This wall up here is my life of sin. It's my way. It's my idolatry. You turn from that. And as you're turning from that, you're turning toward something. When you turn from sin, you turn toward faith in Christ. Jesus is the only one who can forgive you. He's the only one that can save you. He's the only one that can cleanse you. So when you turn from your sin, you're you're simultaneously turning to Christ as the only one that can forgive you. And also, you need help daily. I need help daily from the Holy Spirit to give us help to repent. So it's not beyond the pale for you to say, Holy Spirit, help me repent. You need to be praying that. Holy Spirit, give me strength to repent. Feel the weight of your sin. Be specific with your sin. Confess your sin. Repent of that sin. And trust in Jesus alone to cleanse you from the inside out. You see, true repentance means you've been changed inwardly and you've been so overwhelmed by your sin that you fall on your face in humility. You fall on your face in joy because Christ has saved you and you've offended him, but he has saved you, and he's, he's given you new life. And you're so satisfied with Jesus that you seek nothing else in this world but him. So would we all be marked by ongoing, daily, genuine, consistent repentance to the glory of God and for the good of God? Of our souls. Don't be like Israel where your life is called Bakim, weeping. I'm I'm weeping because I got caught. No, let there be true transformation. Let there be true repentance. Let there be true change. And only the Holy Spirit can produce that in you. So would we all leave this place? Yes, we're believers in Jesus, but let's leave this place also being repenters of our sins and trusting in Jesus. Would we all be marked by genuine repentance this morning let me ask you to bow your heads as you go to the lord and i want you to spend some time this morning confessing specific sins asking the lord to bring to your heart those sins that need to be confessed and asking the holy spirit for grace to repent that you would genuinely turn so would you just spend time alone with your savior this morning in whatever way you need to to confess, to repent, to get, to get open with your Lord and to receive His grace and mercy this morning. We come before you this morning. We do not want to be like the Israelites who cried tears of worldly grief because they got caught but not tears of godly sorrow that led to true repentance. Lord, we want to be specific in our confession. We know that we need the grace of the Holy Spirit to change our hearts so that we truly have transformation of life. So my prayer this morning, Lord, is that you would do a work in us, deepen our hearts, to help us be sorry for our sin, 
to help us be specific in our confession of sin and that we would actually be daily turning from that sin with true, authentic life change. Help us to be repenters all the time in our attitudes, in our words, and in our actions. May we be marked by repentance. And Lord, help us to realize you're our only source of hope, Jesus, as we sang earlier. Our only hope is in you, your cross, your blood, your sacrifice is the only way that we can truly have forgiveness of sins. You're our only source of satisfaction, Jesus. You're our only source of, of joy and of strength. And so help us to keep our eyes upon you. Holy Spirit, help us to turn from sin and to be constantly turning toward Christ with our eyes upon Jesus as our all in all. May we leave this place today broken over our sin, sorrowful over our sin, repenting over our sin to the glory of God and to the good of our souls. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.